If you have your copy of God's Word, uh, let's turn together this morning to Matthew uh, chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20, a very, very familiar passage, I'm assuming, to all of us here this morning. Um, as we continue uh, this here, our final week, in looking through our uh, mission statement as a church, uh, higher in worship, deeper in community, and farther in mission. Uh, and this passage of Scripture, known as the Great Commission, is one of those passages of Scripture that is perhaps, again, as I said, one of the most familiar that we have in the New Testament for the church and the task at hand that we have before us. And I have preached on this passage of Scripture multiple times uh, over my time in ministry. Uh, we were just in this passage just a little over a year ago as we finished up our study in Matthew, and I actually looked back at, at some of my past notes to see at other times when I had preached this passage, and I was interested to find that I had preached it uh, sometime around the, the end of 2017, the beginning of 2018. Um, and in that passage, in that sermon, uh, we had set a goal as a church uh, that based on this passage of Scripture, based upon our view of what uh, the Lord is calling us to do here, that we wanted to plant a church out of Barberville by the year 2020. Now, those of you who are members of this church who have been here that long know that we did see God answer that prayer. In 2020, we sent out uh, Pastor Brent and his family and Lee and Sandra English over to Jackson County to plant a church over there. And so then again, by God's grace, two years later, uh, last year, we saw uh, Pastor Ben and his family being sent out uh, to go pastor there in New York, a church that was already established, but by... Uh, all understanding, and in fact, I just had a conversation with uh, Pastor Ben this last week. We were talking just a little bit. Uh, you know, they view that work there really as a, uh, a church plant or a replant uh, because of kind of the situation that that church was in. But again, God is abundantly blessing them there. So church, our size, uh, a normative-sized Baptist church in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, over the past uh, few years have been able to send out two different churches from our congregation. And then not only that, uh, God, again, in His providence and grace, brought Kelly and Georgia here to the church. And so although they were already on the mission field, we've been able to officially commission them from our church as they go forth to the mission field. So the Lord is answering prayers as we see this, because this is our goal, to be going farther and farther in mission. It's my prayer that as a church, we're going to be able to continue to do this, that every two to three years, that by God's grace, we would be sending somebody out of this church, whether that's to pastor a church, to plant a church, to go to the mission field, uh, that the Lord would enable us to keep seeing those things happen. As I think about the future for our church, no other passage in Scripture excites me like this passage of Scripture. Uh, and not, not only is the task at hand here that we find in this passage, but we really understand that everything that we need to do what God has called us to do is found here promised in these three verses here at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we are really seeing the Lord answer these prayers, and I really believe uh, that if we will be faithful to do what God has called us to do here, that the best years of ministry for Barberville Baptist Church are yet to come. So if you found your way there, let's stand together, Matthew chapter 28. Again, we're going to be reading verses 18 through 20. 
This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You can be seated. It's really incredible, and I know that you experience this in your own private quiet time, that even a passage of Scripture that is so familiar to us, that we can read it one time, and God speaks to us so profoundly through that passage of Scripture, and then come back to it six months, a year, six years later, and read that same passage of Scripture. And again, God speaks so clearly to us, sometimes in, in profoundly different ways. He applies those things to our life. Now, we understand that the context and the meaning of the text, the explanation always remains the same, because the explanation of a text, the meaning of a text, is not based upon our life circumstances. It's not based upon our cultural backgrounds. The whole understanding of a text, the interpretation of that text, is based upon the context of the audience to whom it was written, who was the speaker, what was going on at that particular time. So we understand the, the, the text means what it means, but God uses those things to apply to us in different ways as the course of our life and the growth of our spiritual development with Him. So I want you to notice here, very familiar passage of Scripture, Jesus has been with His disciples. Uh, he has appeared to them after His death. They've gathered together, there's large crowds of them that had come to him after his death, and, and so Jesus had been preaching and speaking to the people, and he begins to separate himself out because he wants to do something for his disciples. He wants to give them this great commission. He wants to give them this charge. But I want you to notice there in verse 16, it says that the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee in the mountain where Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. You see, there was an element of doubt that was still in mind of some of, uh, the, the, uh, of the disciples, some of those who were following after Jesus. Because again, what had happened? Jesus had died. They had watched him be nailed to a cross. They had watched his lifeless body be pulled down. They had seen his prepared body go into the tomb and the stone roll in front of it. They had waited day after day. And remember, in Jewish customary practice, after three days, someone was officially dead. So they knew Jesus had literally, physically, in all practicality, he was a dead man, physically dead. But now, here he stood before them. Now, here was the risen Lord in front of them. You can understand how some of them still were questioning in themselves, can this really be true? Can the risen Lord actually still be, am, am, am I just imagining this? Is it all a, a figment of my imagination? And Jesus understood this. So he called them unto himself, and he spoke to them. It's beautiful here to see the heart of Jesus because Jesus wants them to be prepared for what is getting ready to happen. Because he knows. He, he over and over again had tried to prepare them for his departure. You read any of the gospel accounts, you see Jesus tell them, I'm not always going to be here. I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. You need to be prepared. I'm not always going to be with you. And it was as if it just flew over their heads every single time. But here Jesus is going to gather his disciples together. He's gathering the believers together. And he's giving them a message of hope and encouragement, but also a task. This really here is this triumphant proclamation that brings an end to the gospel of Matthew. 
Everything has been building up until this point. Everything has been accumulating until this very moment when Jesus issues this triumphant proclamation of victory. We need to understand what Jesus is saying here at the end of chapter 28 here in Matthew is, I did it. I've won. I've had victory over death, hell, and the grave. Sin no longer has power over you as believers. He rules. He is in power and authority. It's the words of our king. Gathering his people together to give them this proclamation of victory. I thought about, you know, in in days of old when a king would gather his people together and they would celebrate at the victory that the king had accomplished. And this is really what this is. As we read this passage of Scripture, we should be celebrating as we understand what it is Jesus was saying to them, but also what he is saying to us is that we are a victorious people because he is a victorious king. We are a conquering people because he is a conquering king and he has conquered all that needs to be done. So let us listen closely to what Jesus has to say to us this morning. Notice what he says there in verse 18. There is an authority that has been given to him. It says, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. Some translations use the word power there. It really means the same type of thing. All authority, all power has been given unto Christ. Now, we understand that Christ had power while he was on the earth. He operated in some of his power. That's why he was able to raise Lazarus from the dead, cause the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to walk. But Jesus is not operating in the fullness of the Godhead's power until this moment now that he serves as our mediator. Now he has this mediatorial power that has been given to him by God because he has gone to the cross. He has died and he has been resurrected from the dead. All power, he says, has been given to him. Notice that word, all. Every bit of power that there exists in the world, in the universe, has been given unto Christ. It speaks of his omnipotence. He is all-powerful not just some of the power. You know, you think about the greatest kings and rulers who have ever lived. You think about Caesar. You think about Pharaoh. Think about all of these men who amassed great empires across Europe and across the Middle East. But even at the, even at the height of their rule and their power, they didn't have all power. They didn't have all power on the earth, let alone all power in heaven. Jesus says he has been given all power passage that was read earlier, Ephesians chapter 1. It says, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come, and will put what? All things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feast. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. John chapter 1, excuse me, John chapter 5, for not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. He rules. He has all power, all authority. 
Paul in Philippians, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a great hope for us, that all power has been given unto Jesus. But notice what he says there. He doesn't just say all power. He says, all authority and power has been given to me where in heaven and on the earth. It was John Stott who said, the fundamental basis of all Christian missionary enterprise is the universal authority of Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. Only because all authority on earth belongs to Christ do we go to all the nations. And only because all authority in heaven is his as well do we have any hope of success. This is a beautiful promise to us as believers. This passage is all about the missionary endeavor. And when I say the missionary endeavor, I don't mean just missionary endeavors across the globe. I mean missionary endeavors across the globe, but I also mean missionary endeavors across the street. Everything that we are called to do as believers in Christ, as missionaries in this world, Jesus says that he has all power, all authority in heaven and on the earth. The authority spoke of his omnipotence and his power. This in heaven and earth speaks of his sovereignty. There is not one place on the face of the earth where Jesus is not king. There's not one part in the universe where Jesus is not king. He is king and ruler in heaven and on the earth. His kingdom encompasses everything. Now think about the boldness that this should give us. In days of old, if you were one of the knights of the king, you did not fear when you were walking in the kingdom of your king. You might have feared if you drifted out into the lands of an enemy. But brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning. There are no enemy lands because he is Lord over all. There may be places where we find ourselves in the presence of our enemy, but they're not ruling over it. Jesus is ruling over all of it. He's the only ruler in heaven. He's the only ruler over the earth. And he's ruling by all power and authority. Christ's kingdom, he says, is in heaven and on the earth, and God has given him all power and all authority. Why should this encourage us? Because as we go forth, there's not one place that we're going to go where Jesus' reign does not reach. So if we're standing on the street corner in Waynesville, or if we're standing before the president of the United States himself, we do not have to fear because their kingdoms are subject to the greater kingdom. He is the one who has all power and all authority. Nothing is going to happen outside of his control. We know this. We believe this as as Christians. He's ruling in all power and authority now. And we know that there's coming a day when the culmination of that kingdom will happen. We should be encouraged this morning that Christ's kingdom is not lessened because there are some who do not obey. But his kingdom will still continue to rule and reign until, as the scripture says here, he will put all things in subject under his feet. Brothers and sisters, do not be discouraged when we look around and we see that there are those who do not bow the knee to Christ, Jesus is still on the throne. Do not be discouraged when we look around and we see things happening in our world that we don't like. 
Jesus is still on the throne. And if we believe this promise here that Jesus has given us, one day the Scripture tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is doing his work. He is accomplishing his task because he has an authority that has been given to him. But secondly, I want you to notice that there is a task that is given. Look at verse 19. He says, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you.'" It's an interesting word that Matthew describes here as he talks about what Jesus says, go, therefore. We interpret that in the English language as just the idea of somebody is standing still and we're commanding them to go. You come to a stoplight, the light is red, you stop, the light turns green, you go. You're waiting around on somebody and waiting for the, waiting for the, the, the clock to ring and your alarm to go off because then you start. But actually the word go that is translated here actually means as you are going. So it assumes that the person who's being talked to is already moving, is already underway, that they're already doing something because we understand that the Christian faith is a living and an active faith, that we should be going and we already should be moving along. Christianity is not something we do and we just hide and isolate ourselves in the corner, but we should be going and doing because it is what we are called to do. But why do we go? He says, go therefore. I love this. And I've heard so many preachers say, whenever you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for, right? So what does that mean? Because it's easy just to glance over that word. It's easy just to read there, say, go therefore. Okay, now let's get to the important part and make disciples. But Jesus says, go therefore. Why? Why do we go? We go because he has all power and all authority. So his power, his authority gives us strength for the mission at hand. He gives us what we need in this moment. I have to be honest this morning that this passage of Scripture has meant so much more to me and encouraged me so much more in my life the more I have developed a hopeful eschatology. The more that I have developed an eschatology of hope that God is still doing His work here upon the earth and that God will continue to do His work. He will continue to transform hearts and lives and people. And if God is going to continue to transform hearts and lives and people, we're going to see it's natural here in just a minute for it to also transform the nations of the earth. And the more hopeful my eschatology has become, I realized that I told, I think it was, I told Nate the other day, it's like our eschatology, our view of the end, if it drives us to put our head in the sand instead of our hands to the work, then we have a very poor perspective of what Jesus is doing. We should be more passionate about what God is doing upon the earth each and every day. I remind you, and I know I've said this over and over again, but I think it bears repeating. It's bad right now as we look around. We look around and we see all kinds of evil being celebrated in our culture, in our world. It's just plainly out there everywhere you look. You don't have to even go look for it. It's just in your face everywhere you go. 
But I want to encourage you to read church history. And you're going to find that there have been periods of time, 150, 400, 600, 1,000 years ago, where Christian writers were saying the exact same thing about the time in which they were living. It was bad. But you know what? Jesus was still on the throne. He was still accomplishing his purposes. And guess what? The scripture tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It doesn't matter what our culture says. It doesn't matter what the government says. It doesn't matter what the world says. God's mission does not bow to the world. Jesus' mission does not bow to the kings of this life. He says, all power, all authority has been given. Therefore, go. And as you are going, here's what you're to do. He says, make disciples of all the nations. Now, some translations use the word teach here. Uh, And disciple here is a better translation because the word teach is not the same word as he uses down in verse 20. So Jesus here is saying, go to all the nations and make disciples of all the nations. Now, what what does it mean to make disciples? Because what Jesus is helping us to understand is that the Great Commission is not just about making converts. Our mission is not just to go out there and to get a bunch of people to pray a prayer. Our mission is to go out there and to bring everyone under the subjection of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to go out there and proclaim the gospel to every person, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and to teach them the truth of the Scriptures. And then we rely upon the Holy Spirit to do His work in their hearts. It's not up to us to make it happen. Our job is to tell them, this is what Jesus says, and this is what you must do. You subject yourself. You must bow to the understanding of the teaching, bringing all nations of the world under His teaching. I found it interesting as I was reading through Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry is always one of my favorite commentators to read. He says, when Jesus says here to make disciples of all the nations, what he's saying is, do your utmost to make the nations Christian nations. This should be our goal, right? Not because we're creating an empire, but because we want every person on the face of the earth to understand this is what Jesus has said you must do. We're going to teach you what the Scripture says is the right way to live your life. Do you think that in a kingdom, that the subjects in that kingdom said, well, you know, I understand what the king says, but I'm just going to do what I want to do. Now, sure, there were some that would do that, but they would face the consequences for it. And it's just like in this life. There are people who can choose to disobey what Jesus has said, But in the end, they're going to face the consequences for it. But it's our job to help them to know that. It's our job to take the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scriptures to every nation. That's what it says, right? Make disciples, bring them under the subjection of the teaching of Christ. What? To all nations. Matthew Poole said in his commentary, all nations means every reasonable creature capable of hearing and receiving it. So if a person has two ears, two eyes, they're living and breathing, they should receive the gospel of Christ from us. It's not up to us to decide who those people are. If they're breathing, they need the gospel, and it's our job to take it to them. 
The gospel here is now going beyond the Jews. This is a really pivotal moment for the church. It's a really pivotal moment for the disciples because up until this point, the, the, the teaching of Jesus has really been limited inside just to the Jews. The teaching of the church had really just been limited to those inside the nation of Israel. But now Jesus is making it clear that the gospel is to go outside of Judaism into all the world, into the Gentile nations and across as far as they could even think or comprehend. Acts chapter one, verse eight. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now think about what that would have meant to the disciples in this period of time. It's a vast objective, even for us. Now, some 2,000 years later, we, we realize that there are places upon the face of the earth, not that they're hard to get to, right? Because we can jump on a plane and go there in just a matter of hours. But there are still places on the face of the earth today where there are people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are places on the face of the earth today where no one has ever gone to them with a Bible. No one has ever gone to them and told them that, God, that Jesus Christ even exists. So this is still for us a vast expanse of task that we are to command, that we are to do, that God has commanded us to do. It's not that even now, some 2,000 years later, that it has eased up a bit. In fact, there is now, we understand even more places that we need to go than even the disciples would have understood 2,000 years ago as Jesus echoed these words to them. Our mandate that Jesus is giving here is to see that every nation in the world would be filled with those who bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the incredible part of this is, is that we are the tool that God has chosen to use to make this happen on the earth. He has called us as his disciples. He has called us as believers that we would be the ones who would take the message of the authority and the lordship of Jesus to the nations around the world, to every living person that they might know who Jesus is. He says to go to all the world, to go to all the Gentiles, to go to the Jew, to the Greek, alike, and make disciples of them. Teach them the truth. Teach them the word of God. Call them into subjection to the king. He says as part of that task, the next thing that happens, he says, is that you would baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So as the gospel is proclaimed, it's natural that out of that proclamation, Out of that teaching of truth, there are going to be some who would profess their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So the first step of obedience for a new Christian is baptism. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the the physical act of baptism. As Baptists, we know and believe baptism is when a person goes under the water. The word literally means to immerse, baptizo. So it's going under the water. So Jesus is saying, After these people have come to faith in Christ, they've made a profession of faith. They say, yes, I understand who God is. I understand who Christ is. I want to subject myself under his authority. I want to turn away from my wicked ways. I want to serve Christ forever. He says the next step is baptism. Baptism is the entrance method into the local church. And really, baptism is a public 
picture, not just of the burial of the, of the burial and the resurrection of Christ, but baptism is a public recognition of your submission to the authority of Jesus Christ. When somebody watches somebody else getting baptized, what you're saying is, as I'm being baptized, I'm saying my life is no longer my own. I'm submitting myself to Christ. His power, his rule, his authority, his perspective, his everything is now greater than my anything. And I submit myself to him. Notice there that Jesus has baptized them in the name singular of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why does he use the singular there instead of the plural? Because he's talking about three names. Well, because we understand that there is only one God encompassed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he says, baptize them in the name, God, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three gods in one person. Again, it's this picture of submission, not just to a God, but to the God. And all three parts of the Godhead are encompassed here, that we are submitting ourselves to the Father, submitting ourselves to the Son, submitting ourselves to the rule and reign of the Holy Spirit. Now, the next step, those who have professed faith and trust in Christ are not just to be baptized, but now we see this continual teaching and more discipleship that happens. Now he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, this word teach is the natural word teach that we understand of training someone. He says, those who are converted are now to be taught. They're now to be instructed. They're now to be continued to grow in their faith. And what are we to teach them? What Jesus says here, to observe all things that I commanded you. All things that Christ had taught them, these disciples are now to teach these new converts. Well, what did Jesus teach them? Remember that passage that we've referred back to in Jude over and over again, the faith once for all delivered to the saints? This is what Jesus is talking about here. Everything that he taught the apostles, the apostles were to teach the disciples, and the disciples were to teach the Christians who were converted as they went out and shared the gospel. Every single thing of what Jesus had called us to do. And why is this so important? Because we can't understand who Christ is until we understand what he has taught us. We can't understand what he expects us to do until we understand what he has taught us. We can't have hope in this life until we understand the promises that Christ has given us. We can't have endurance in this life until we understand that he said, I will never leave you nor forsake us. That's why it's so important as believers that we never stop studying the Bible. Because as we learn something new each and every day, every time we open up the word of God, we are learning something about God that is more important for us in our Christian walk. I think sometimes we, we severely overthink discipleship. And we think discipleship has to be this elaborate program, right, that, that we have to, have to figure it all out and, and do it in the right way. If you sit down with somebody over a cup of coffee and you open up the Bible and you read the Bible and you're explaining to someone, okay, let's start here in John. And you read that passage, and you say, here's what Jesus is saying here. Here's what he's instructing you to do. And then you pray. That's discipleship. It doesn't have to be elaborate. Jesus says, 
teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. So how do we learn what Jesus has commanded us? By reading his word. So at its very core, discipleship is centered around teaching the word of God to people that they understand what God has called us to do. The beautiful thing about discipleship, or should be, is that it is a deep thing. It's not superficial. Discipleship should not be superficial. It should be deep in the sense that we cover all of these important doctrines that God has given to us. We don't water down the teaching. We don't soften the edges of the rough things. We don't try to take the burn off of the hard things, but we allow those things to transform our lives. Sometimes it's not easy when we're discipling someone to talk about certain things that are in the Scripture. Because we know, as we read a passage, we know that this passage is going to hit that person right where it hurts. But the beautiful thing is, is that's exactly what it's intended to do. The Word of God cuts us exactly where it needs to cut us. It is a precision surgeon cutting exactly where it needs to and taking out those things that it needs to remove. But notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't just say to teach them all that I commanded you. He says, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Because the focus here is not just on biblical knowledge, but on obedience to that biblical knowledge. Jesus said in John chapter 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you. John chapter 10, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they what? They follow me. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I command you? There is a very abundant picture in the New Testament that Christianity and true faith is not just about knowing a lot about Christ, but about taking what we know and actually obeying it. We actually talked about this in our Sunday school class this morning. We are not saved by our works. Scripture is very clear on that. We're saved by faith in Christ alone. Jesus here is very clear on that. But it's also very clear that a faith without works, James says, is dead. Because we're not saved by our works, but our faith is evidenced by our works. So if someone professes faith in Christ, but yet they are not observing and obeying the commands that God has given them, it's very clear, Scripture says, that they've never understood what true faith is. So Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations. He says, teach them to observe, to do what I've called you to do. There is an obedience that must be presented, and we need to help people understand this. Because we live in a time where there are so many people convinced that all it takes to become a Christian is just to believe the right things. And if they believe the right things, then that must be what it means to be a Christian. There are so many people who think that if you pray a prayer here on this moment or you attend the right church, that's all it takes, and you can live your life however you want to live your life, and it's all going to be okay in the end. But Jesus is very clear. Teach them all that I've commanded you, but teach them to observe those things.
I think that observing, that obedience, is so beautifully pictured in what Jesus is actually calling his disciples to do here in this passage. Because we understand that he has been given authority. We understand now that he has given them a task to do. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, finally, I want you to notice here that there's a beautiful promise that is given. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, earlier in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, it says this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Here Jesus is echoing a fulfillment to that. It was fulfilled in his birth because he was here on the earth as he walked among us as a human being. But it's also fulfilled in the beautiful promise that says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, you remember Jesus said that he was going to go away, but he said, I'm going to send another, the comforter, who will come to you. He had promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit would come and indwell in them with all power and authority with them. But Jesus says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What a, what a precious promise this is, not just to the disciples here in Matthew chapter 28, but this is a beautiful promise to us because Jesus is speaking these words to us too, this command, this proclamation of victory. He says, I am with you. You know what this is? This is a guaranteed promise of success. This is a guaranteed promise of victory. And this doesn't mean that in every witnessing encounter, we're going to see someone profess faith in Christ. It doesn't mean that the church is going to escape trial and tribulation. It doesn't mean that every day is going to be a cakewalk. But it does mean that in the end, we know victory. It does mean that in the end, Christ is going to put all things under his feet. And it means that even in this moment right now, because he is ruling and reigning, he is with us. The king is walking alongside of you each and every day as you go out and seek to be obedient to the task that he has called us to do. He is with us. Notice that he says, I am with you. When? Always. There's never a moment that Jesus is not with us. There's never a moment that we are alone. One commentator said something along the lines is, there are some moments when God is quiet, but there are never a moment when God is absent. There are some times in our life where we walk through difficult seasons, but we're not alone. There are some times where we walk through seasons that seem to weigh us down, but we are not alone. He is always there to carry us. He is always there to guide us. He is always there to guard us. He is always there to protect us. He is always there to hold us up. He is always there to provide for us the things that he needs, that we need. And he is always there to guarantee the success of the work. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. I know 
that many of us have walked through dark seasons. And in those dark seasons, it seems that we're alone. But Jesus says here, I am with you always. If Jesus has lied to you here, he's lied in every other place in the Scripture. But if he's true every other place in the Scripture, he's true to you here. He is with you always. He's holding your hand. He's keeping you, sometimes even when you can't see it. But trust, hope, and know. And this is such an encouragement to us as a congregation as we think about what it is that God has called us to do, not just as individuals, but as a church. That he is with us. As we look around at this world, we see the difficulties that we may face in the coming years as Christians to stand upon the truth of God's word. We understand that it probably more than any other time in the history of this nation, we are getting closer to a period where persecution may be a real reality for the church of Jesus Christ. But we don't have to be afraid because he's with us. And he says, I'll be with you always. That means in the good times, in the bad times, in the intermediate times, he's always going to be with us. Jesus says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why can no one snatch us out of the hand of Jesus? Because he has all power, all authority, and he never leaves us. He never leaves us unguarded in his hand where someone could come in and snatch us away. Paul said in Romans, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The promise of our perseverance, he is with us always. Finally, he says, not just always, but added on to always, even to the end of the age. Because maybe there could be a question here. Well, how long is always, Jesus? Is that just for a little while, right? Just until the disciples die out, just till the church at Jerusalem is established? How, how long is that always? So Jesus adds on to always and says, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. What is the end of the age? He's not just talking about the age in which the disciples were alive. He's talking about the culmination of this world. He says, I'm going to be with you until I come again. And why is this so encouraging to us? Because every generation is to set our hands to the task of sharing the gospel because Jesus is with us. No matter what happens, No matter the difficulties that may arise, he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, generation after generation. It's easy for us to read that word end there and think of this moment of finality. But really what Jesus is talking about here is not a moment of finality end, but he's talking about the consummation end. Because when he returns as At his second coming, he's coming to establish his throne in fullness and power even more than it is now. One commentator said that there's no time of apostasy that will ever be so great as to nullify the true gospel ministry of the Bible-preaching church. So when Jesus says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, that means every generation, one after another, will continue to see the work of God in the midst of the world. 
This is a long-term venture for us as a church. It's a long-term venture for us, not just as Barberville Baptist Church, but for us as the small C Catholic Church, the universal church. It is a long-term mission for us. That's why we've taken these three concepts, higher in worship, deeper in community, and farther in mission, and combined them to speak to the idea of fulfilling the Great Commission through a multi-generational ministry in obedience to Christ. Our mission is to go higher in worship, deeper in community, farther in mission, but our vision is to fulfill the Great Commission through a multi-generational ministry in obedience to Christ. Multi-generational means that it's going to take decades of time. Some of what we're doing here in this moment, we will not see the fruit of for 10, 15, or 20 years. Some of what we're doing now, we'll see the fruit of next week. Some of what we're doing now, we may never see the fruit of in our lifetime. But that should be encouraging to us. Why? Because Jesus says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Generation after generation, he is accomplishing his work and his purpose in the church through all generations. In two years, we will celebrate 100 years of ministry here at Barberville Baptist Church. It was 1925 when a family started this church on their front porch right about where Chick-fil-A sits now. Just a few years later, they received the property out here where the parking lot is. They built a small rock church. And so that time, for a little over 90 years, this church has been here on Russ Avenue in Waynesville. By God's grace, until he returns, whether that be five years, 50 years, or 500 years from now, by God's grace, this church will remain a faithful witness, making disciples, teaching them to obey him, baptizing them, calling them to submit to his lordship, all by the power and the promise that he is with us. We're entrusting his power into all hear his truth. Let us not just go higher in worship, not just go deeper in community, but let us commit ourselves as a church to go farther in mission. We have a mission at our doorstep. You have a mission in your neighborhood. You have a mission in your place of employment. Some of you might even have a mission in your own household. It is our job to take the gospel to every creature, knowing that God has promised that he will be with us every step along the way. And in the end, that he will accomplish everything that he purposes to do, because he rules and he reigns. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the promise that lies here in this text. Lord, a text that is, Lord, so beautifully tied in with evangelism and mission, but, Father, a text that is also so clearly describing your power and authority, and, Lord, that it is your desire that all nations be subject to you, that all people be subject to you because you are worthy of honor and praise and glory. Father, so often... We can be tempted to be too humble 
in our demands, too humble in our proclamations. But Father, you have put Jesus on the throne. He has all power and all authority. We should not, we must not fear any authority on this earth because he rules and he reigns. And he has called us to this task to take the gospel to every man, woman, and child. Lord, help us. Lord, we want to be people passionate about the Great Commission. You you have told us here, Father, that you will give us what we need. We don't have to worry about whether we have a degree or don't have a degree. We don't have to worry about how many years we've been a Christian or not been a Christian. If we are in Christ, Father, we have all power given through you by the power of the Holy Spirit to do what you've called us to do. You're not sending us out there unequipped. You're not sending us out there defenseless. You're sending us out there with everything that we need to be obedient to you. Lord, all you're waiting on us to do is just to take that step and say, Father, I'm willing. Bring that person into my path. Put me in that place where that person is. So, Father, we pray that this morning. We don't just want to be a church that isolates ourselves inside the four walls of this sanctuary. We want to be a church that is active on mission everywhere we go. So, Father, give us the courage. Give us the strength. Lord, crush the fear of man in our heart. Lord, so that when we're standing in the line at the grocery store, when we're sitting in the waiting room at the doctor's office, when we're sitting at the lunch table with our coworkers, when we're even walking down the street and we encounter a stranger, Father, help us to have the courage to break down that wall and to share the gospel, to strike up a conversation, or to tell them about how glorious our Lord and Savior is, to tell them what the scripture says is that there's only one way to you and it's through Jesus Christ to tell them that they are sinful, that they are sinful people who need a glorious savior and that Christ has come to make a way. Lord, we pray that as we approach another hundred years of ministry in this church, Lord, that we would be more committed now than we ever have before to seeing this town and this community, this state, this country transformed by the powerful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, do your work in our hearts. We're thankful, Lord, for your promises. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.